Have you ever had a person make a promise to you and then they made no attempt to carry through on the promise that they had made to you? How did that leave you feeling? Have we ever made a promise to somebody and then not carried through on it? And what did that do to the relationship with the person we made the promise to and didn't carry through on the promise? Sincerity, carrying through on our promises that we make to people is huge. It can make or break relationships depending on what our sincerity level is. If we keep our promises, we follow through. It's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. We put a lot of emphasis on the promises that God makes to us. But how about the promises that we make to Him? How about the commitments that we make to Him? Do we follow through on those commitments? Because if we do, it strengthens and enhances and builds our relationship with the Lord. And if we break promises to Him, no, He doesn't zap us with a lightning bolt, etc. But it harms and messes up our relationship with Him when we make promises to Him that we do not keep. Jesus told a parable of that effect. I've been in a series of messages on the parables that Jesus taught. And today we're going to look at the parable of the two sons. One son keeps a promise. Another son doesn't keep a promise. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Now, let's look at the background of this passage. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you that are joining us either through radio or through the Internet on our iCampus. God bless you and thank you for being with us in worship today. And if you have a Bible close to you, I invite you to turn with us to Matthew chapter 21. Now, let's look at the context of this passage of Scripture. It is the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He entered Jerusalem on Sunday, and on, we call it Palm Sunday. He went into the temple, and he drove out all of the money changers and what we call the cleansing of the temple. The last week of Jesus' life, he did not spend one night in Jerusalem. What he would do is he stayed in what we would call a suburb today of a place called Bethany, and he would travel into the city of Jerusalem each day to teach, to do whatever he was going to do, then go back out and spend the night in Bethany, and then come back the next day. So he goes in there on Sunday, cleanses the temple. He leaves that evening, goes out to Bethany, and sometime early in the week, he comes back into the city of Jerusalem. And when he comes back into the city of Jerusalem, he goes into the temple. Now, get the picture here. Jesus, in this last year of his public ministry, has progressively becoming more and more unpopular. The Jewish leadership realizes that his popularity with the common folks is rising, so his popularity with them is going down, whereas popularity with the common folk is going up, and they're not happy with him at all. And Jesus walks into the temple. Now, he has just cleansed it a day or two earlier driven out all the money changes. So that has enhanced his lack of popularity. And he walks in there, and the chief priest and the elders walk up to him, and they begin to throw questions at him, and they begin to question his authority. What right do you have to heal people? What right do you have to come in here and teach? What right do you have to make the claims that you're making? And they just keep needling him and driving at him in public in front of a crowd. They keep pushing it back on him on his authority. And Jesus does in this instant what he loves to do, and that is he answers a question with a question. 
And so he begins to engage them in this dialogue. And then when we come down to the 28th verse of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Jesus looks at them and he poses a question, another question at them. What do you think? He's drawing them into the story that he's going to tell them. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. How many of you that have had children have ever heard those words when you ask them to do something? <laughs> I will not. <laughs> they didn't say it verbally. They said it with their lack of activity in response. I will not. But after it, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, Jesus here tells the story as he does in the parables, and we've got characters and we've got a plot. The characters that we've got are the father who represents God and two sons. Now, one son represents the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And we looked last week at tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people because they were seen as league with, in league with the Romans and they went around exacting the money that they were supposed to for Rome and they could take all the rest of the money they wanted to for themselves. So they were basically seen as a group of extortioners who had betrayed the Jewish state and were in line with the Romans. So they were hated by the folks. So the tax collectors and the sinners or the prostitutes represent one group uh, or one son is represented by them. The other son is represented or speaks of the chief priest and the elders who were the folks who were right around Jesus at that time listening to what he was saying and he's engaging in dialogue with them. So, and then we've got this plot that begins to open up for us. First of all, verse 28. The father goes to the son, the first son, and he says, I want you to go into my vineyard, and I want you to work in my vineyard today. Now, in those days, a lot of people were farmers. A vineyard would have been very popular. They would have seen vineyards all over the place growing grapes, etc. And so he walks up to him, and he says, son, I want you to go into my vineyard, and I want you to work today. In other words, nowadays, we'd probably say, son, I want you to go out there, and I want you to cut the grass, and I want you to work in the garden or do whatever. But I want you to go out there, and I want you to get to it. I want you to do it right now. Now, what Jesus is illustrating here, and we're going to see this be, open up as he moves through this passage, is, is faith. How does faith work? And notice what Jesus says here, because he's opening this idea of how faith works. He says, I want you to go into my vineyard today. First of all, notice the timing of it. I want you, son, to do it now. Do it today. What Jesus is trying to teach us is that faith acts, and it acts immediately. 
Faith is not about sitting back and talking about all that I believe about God and what God can and will do. And I feel so good about the fact that I've talked about all that God's, that I believe God can do, but then I don't act on it. Faith gets up and moves out and acts. If I'm really having faith, if I'm really trusting the Lord and believing the Lord and following the Lord, then I'm going to act and I'm going to act immediately. He says, go into the vineyard today. And he says, I want you to go there and I want you to work in that vineyard. In other words, he's saying, doesn't say, I want you to stand out around the vineyard and say, man, I really believe in vineyards. And vineyards are really great. And I bet you I could have a wonderful time in that vineyard. I bet we could really get a nice harvest in that vineyard. And I really like vineyards. In fact, I'm going to sing about a vineyard. And I'm going to talk about a vineyard. And I'm going to, you know, crack jokes about a vineyard and all the rest. No, he says, I want you to go and I want you to work right now in the vineyard. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you're going to follow me in faith. You're going to go do what I want you to do. You're going to go where I've served you. You're going to go immediately and you're going to do that because that's what faith does. It doesn't sing and talk about and preach about it. It gets out and it does it. I want you to go and work in the vineyard today. And the son responds, verse 29, and he says, I will not. I'm not going to do it, Dad. His first response is one of rebellion. I see your old sorry vineyard over there. I know what you want me to do, and I'm not going to go do it. I'm going to sit over here, and I'm absolutely not going to do it. But then notice the next verse. It says he changes his mind. Verse 29. But afterward, he changed his mind. Now, I want you to take those two words, but afterward. What happens between, no, I'm not going to, and I'm headed into the vineyard? There's a but afterward in there. Some of you that I'm talking with this morning, you've got people in your life that are living in the but afterward. They have told the Lord, I'm not going to serve you, I'm not going to follow you. They may be a child, they may be a grandchild, they may be a friend. But they have told God no, and you are frustrated. You may even be disgusted with them. You're about ready to give up on them because they've said no to God. But see, in that but afterward period of time, that's where the Spirit of God goes to work. That's where the Spirit of God goes to work on people's hearts and minds. Give God time and place to do His work. Give the grace of God time and place in a person's life. And don't give up just because you were living with them in the but afterward. Because God is at work in that place. You see, sometimes what we try to do is we want to push up the change in people's lives. We want to see them get right with God and get right with God today. And what the Lord wants us to do is pray. Pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their life. Pray that God will work with them, convict them, draw them to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. But don't give up on people in the but afterward time. All right? Because God's at work, even if it doesn't look like he's at work. We don't see where he's at work. God is at work. And if you are praying and asking for the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, God is at work there, even if it looks like he's not at work there. And I think one of the things Jesus is trying to teach us is that most of us, when he comes to us and he says, I want you to follow me, I want you to serve me, what do most of us say at first to him? 
You look back in your life, what did most of us say way back then? No, I'm not doing it. I'm going to go do my own thing. And then the Lord begins to work. And the Lord continues to work. And he continues to convict and to draw by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit till we say yes to him. And so that's what's going on in their lives during that, what I like to call the but afterward time there. And then notice the second son. He comes to the second son and he says, son, I, I want you to go work in my vineyard. Now, the second son has listened to the first son. And the second son says, yes, sir, I'll go. Can't wait to get there. But then he doesn't end up doing anything. He said the right thing at the right time, but he doesn't do anything. How many people tell Jesus, jump up there and tell Jesus, I'll go, I'll do it, I'll be obedient, and then they don't do anything with it? I mean, if you've hung around church for very long, you've seen this scenario. People come to church, they get all excited, they walk the aisle, they pray to trust Christ, they get baptized. They, as we like to say, they're going to walk on water and call down fire out of heaven. I mean, they just know into what they're going to do for the Lord. And then six months later, the FBI couldn't find them if they had to. So what, what has happened? I think several things Jesus is trying to illustrate when we say yes and then we don't do anything. First of all, it's easy for people to get caught up in the emotions of the hour. Some people get caught up in the emotions of the moment. And they will just say and jump at anything in the emotions of the moment. But there's no heartfelt commitment down here. Sometimes people say, yes, I'll go do it. Because they're trying to impress others. Even trying to impress themselves. Man, look at me. I said I would follow Jesus. I said I would be committed to him. I said I would do this and I would do that and I would do the other. There really wasn't a commitment there to Christ. It was just a commitment to impress other people, to play the game the way they thought they had to play the game at that particular time, to get on the good side of people or whatever. Sometimes even we want to impress ourselves. Man, look at what I said that I would do to follow the Lord. But we really weren't committed to Christ. We were committed more to following ourselves and do what impressed us. And so the son says, yes, I'll do it. But then he doesn't follow through. Now, I want us to look at some key terms as Jesus develops and opens the story here. First of all, in verse 31, he talks about how, he says, which of the two did the will of my father? They said, the first, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So he's looking at these priests and these elders, these Jewish leaders, and he says these tax collectors that you despised and the prostitutes that are out on the streets, they are going into the kingdom of God before you are. Now, what is he talking about? What does he mean by that? He's not talking about being religious because the tax collectors and the prostitutes aren't religious, but the chief priests and the elders, I mean, they're the height of being religious. What does he mean here when he says they're going into the kingdom of God? The idea of the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. The book of Matthew is, speaks about the kingdom of God all the time. It comes up like every third verse, it seems, in the book of Matthew. And what Matthew's trying to impress upon us is that the kingdom of God simply means that I'm living in the rule and the reign of God. So what Jesus is saying here is these tax collectors and prostitutes are living under God's rule and God's reign. And he's going to talk about how they're doing that in a moment. But they're living under God's rule and God's reign more than you are. You guys are religious, but you're not living under the lordship of the Lord God. You're not living in submission to him. Now, 
Notice he uses a key word here. He says, they changed, verse 29, their mind. And in verse 32, he looks at the chief priest and the elders, and he says, you haven't changed your mind. It's interesting that the word Jesus zeroes in on here is the word mind. Why does he say that prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors have changed their mind, and you guys haven't changed your mind. Why does he zero in on the word mind, the concept of the mind? Well, the mind is the place of the will. The mind drives everything else. What we think, we feel. What we think, we then act on. If there's going to be change, it has to first and foremost take place in our minds, where we choose where we will, where we make the decision to follow him. And he's simply saying one group has made a decision. They have focused their will on being obedient. And the other group has it. Now, notice Jesus uses a key word, verse 29. He talks about how they changed. Verse 29, and he answered, I will not. But afterward, after he said, I'm not going into the vineyard, afterward he did what? He changed his mind and went. Let's skip down to verse 32, the second half of that verse. And even when you saw it, speaking to the chief priests here and elders, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. So Jesus looks at one group and he says, they changed their minds, and then he looks at the other group and says, you haven't changed your minds. He uses the word for both groups, changed. Now, the word changed is the concept, the idea of repentance. What does it mean to repent? I've got the notes for you in your bulletin and the sermon outline there, and I'd like for you to follow along because I really If you don't get anything else out of this message, I want you to wrap your heart and mind around the concept of repentance. What is repentance? Because Jesus is saying here, either you repent or you don't repent. One group repented, the other group didn't repent. What does it mean to repent? First of all, repentance is a gift from the Lord brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is a gift of the Lord brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain what I mean by that. We cannot trust ourselves with repenting of our sin. And the reason we can't is we will give ourselves off the hook every time. In other words, when we repent, we pick and choose what we're going to repent of. I want to get rid of this in my life, so I'm going to repent of that. I really want to hold on to this in my life, so I'm not going to repent of that. A lot of times we ask for forgiveness without repentance. In other words, I want Jesus to forgive me and not punish me, and I don't want to live with the consequences of my sin, but I don't want to repent of my sin. I don't want to give up with my sin. So genuine repentance is when I choose to work and allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in my life, and He begins to specifically identify in my life what I need to repent of. In other words, He doesn't just point out the sin, He points out the root cause of the sin. 
What is at the rootage of my life that is driving the disobedience? That is what the Spirit of God will do in our lives. That is a gift of the Spirit of God that He begins to work in our lives. Second, when the Spirit of God begins to work in our lives in repentance, He will begin to convict us of specific sins. And, and I stress the word specific because what most of us love to do, and I love to do this, God, forgive me of my sins. I like that. That's nice and neutral, generic. I love generic confession. Forgive me of my sins. And the Lord says, we ain't getting generic about this. We're getting specific about this. We're going to talk specifically about what you need to repent of. And he begins to convict Let me tell you about conviction. Conviction is no fun. When God begins to convict us, we are not going to start singing praise choruses. When God begins to convict us, we're not going to shout hallelujah. We may say, oh my. We may say, like what I said Thursday afternoon after Dallas got beat. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. But anyway... uh, But when God begins, the Spirit of God begins to convict us, it is not going to be a pleasant experience. And then He's going to cre- create within us a sense of need and humility. I need Jesus. I need cleansing. I need to be changed. I'm not up in God's face telling Him, you know, how I got my act together. God's in my face telling me what needs to change in my life. There's a sense of need of Him. There's a sense of humility. And then the Spirit of God drives a genuine sorrow in us. And let me, let me explain this sorrow that God, the Spirit of God drives in us. It is a sorrow where we say, God, I am sorry I hurt you. I am sorry I hurt other people. I am genuinely sorrow for this sin. I'm not just sorry I got caught. I'm not just sorry I'm going to get punished. You know, when I was a kid... And my mother would catch me doing stuff that I wasn't supposed to do. A lot of times I was sorry that she caught me. I was sorry that I was about to get punished for it. But I wasn't sorry that I did it because I'd go do it again as soon as I didn't think she was looking. And when you and I go before the Lord and say, forgive me of my sin, and then we can't wait to jump back in it again, what we're saying there is we're not really sorry. We're just sorry for the consequences, sorry for the punishment, sorry we got caught. Holy Spirit repentance in our lives means that we say to Him, God, I am sorry. The consequences I know I deserve. The punishment I know I got coming to me, but that's not a big deal. The big deal is I'm just sorry I did it in the first place, and I want to get rid of it in my life. That is Holy Spirit produced conviction within us. And it is out of that humility and that need and that sorrow that we reach out to Him. Now, I'm going to say something here that is going to sound a little controversial, so please hear me through. And if you get mad with me, go home, think about it, and pray about it. Then you come back next week and throw a hymnal at me, okay? But pray about it before we throw the hymnal at me, all right? And between now and then, we're going to take all the hymnals out of the pew rack so they won't be available to you next week when you do get back, okay? We talk a lot in Baptist life about accepting Jesus as your Savior. And then we leave off repentance. So we say, accept Jesus as your Savior. And we leave it at that. But this is what we create unintentionally, but this is what we create. Imagine over here, I had a whole lineup of things that I like to collect. Okay, 
I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan, and I got Dallas Cowboy stuff all over the place, all right, at our house. One time I even had Dallas Cowboy underwear, believe it or not, and along with everything else. But I got all these things I collect, so I go out and I find something else that they're selling new from Dallas, and I add it to my collection. And I really like my collection. A lot of times what people do with Jesus is they add him to the collection of what they've got in their life. I got all these things going in my life, so I'll add Jesus to it. I may even have a bunch of religious stuff in my life, and I'll add Jesus to it. And I look at him, and I think it's so nice to have him in my collection. I have accepted him into the collection of the things that I have in my life. But adding Jesus to the collection of all the stuff that I have in my life is one thing. Submitting to his lordship and making him priority in my life is a whole different ball game. And a lot of times when we say we accept Christ, what we're really saying is I'm adding Jesus to the collection and he ought to really be happy that I've added him to the collection. But in repentance, what I say is Jesus, everything that's in my life that is above you and I love more than you and that's in disobedience to you is going to get wiped away, taken out by your work and you are priority. You are number one in my life. I'm not just accepting you into my life. You are the Lord of my life. That is a whole different concept than I just pray a prayer, accept Jesus, and slap him up on the shelf as the newest addition to my collection. And what Jesus was saying to the elders and the chief priest is, God is part of your collection, but he's not really number one in your life. He's just sitting up on the shelf looking pretty. And you're so proud of how he sits on the shelf of your life and looks pretty. These prostitutes and these tax collectors. They are humble. They are desperate. They recognize that they need me. They have repented. They have turned by the work of the Holy Spirit. They are genuinely sorrow for the lives that they've been living. And these prostitutes and tax collectors are saying to me, Jesus, I need you. I want you. And you are not part of the collection. You are the collection. You are number one. You are the top priority in my life. You see, when, when we don't repent, we end up with what's called false conversion. We got the right vocabulary, and we may have jumped through the, some of the hoops, but we really have not turned our lives over to the Lord. Notice what Jesus does in verse 32. He says, you got to repent, you got to change your mind, and you got to believe. Verse 32, he uses the word belief three times in that verse. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness was he, John just said, you got to repent and believe. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Notice how he's tying repentance and belief together over and over again. What does it mean to believe? Believing is not I just acknowledge him. Believing him means that I am acting on what I believe. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and makes it truth to us, and then we act on it. Believing begins with a focus. What do I believe? I believe in the person of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that I take all that I am and I commit it to all that He is. I take all that I am and I commit it to all 
that he is. And I act on it. It changes my life because I'm acting on it. In other words, I'm living it out and serving him. It's very interesting what Jesus does here. Chief priests and elders, they're in the temple. They're standing all around him. But he's also got these tax collectors and prostitutes standing around him. Jesus points out the most notorious sinners in Jerusalem. And he says, they repented. And they believed. They're like the first son who said no and then changed his mind and went to the vineyard and went to work. What is Jesus trying to say to us? He's trying to say no one is beyond my grace. No one is beyond my ability to change a person's life. No one is beyond being led and worked upon by the Spirit of God to repent and to choose to believe. No one is beyond that. So the question comes to us, which son are we? Are we the first son that said no to the Lord, as we all did at some point, and then said, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to walk with you? Or are we like the second son? Oh, yes, I'll be a Christian. Oh, yes, I'll be a church member. Oh, yes, I'll follow you, Lord. But there's no seriousness in it, no genuine commitment in it. We just ought to say all the right things and then go do whatever we want to do. Which of the sons are we? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to, Lord, say yes to you and then run with you, walk with you, serve you, love you, follow you. And, Father, if we put you on the shelf of our life and you're part of the collection, but we haven't really sold out to you, God, convict us of that. Show us that. That Jesus, you need to be number one in our lives. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you break through in us so that, God, that would happen in our lives. And, Lord, for all of us who've got folks that we're praying for and trusting you for, who are in that but afterwards place, they've said no to you. God, we ask that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would touch them, you would speak to their lives, and that you would draw them by the power of the Holy Spirit to yourself. Lord, we can't do that in their lives. Only you can. We ask, we beg, we seek your face for you to do that. And now I want to ask you, if you truly never repented of sin, felt a godly sorrow about sin and acted on it and said, Jesus, I'm sorry for the sin Not just that I got caught, not just for the raunchy consequences of it, but I'm genuinely sorrow for the sin. And Jesus, I reach out to you and I ask you to forgive me and I ask you to change me and I ask you to cleanse me. And I will follow you, Jesus, not just in words, but even more in my actions. Then I want to invite you right now to say to him, Jesus, forgive me. And Jesus, save me. And Jesus, I will follow you starting today.
just a moment as we sing, I want to invite you to walk the aisle of this church. If you're here, if you haven't made that commitment, to make that commitment to the Lord today. And if you're listening to us in some other capacity, I want to invite you to get in touch with us through Facebook, calling the church office, whatever works for you, so that we can encourage you and help you in your walk with the Lord. Father, have your way with us in these moments, we pray in your name. Amen. Sing if you will, and let's come if you will.